Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. You know, the, the story of Pinocchio is one of the most beloved of children's uh, fairy tales until, that is, you learn about the original. Uh, apparently, the original adventures of Pinocchio were written by a guy named Carlo Collati and published in 1881, and it tells a much darker story uh, of a very rebellious little brat uh, who causes Geppetto all kinds of grief. And it's only through the grace of the Blue Fairy who comes in to try to curb the boy's mischievous behavior by making his nose grow every time he lies. And after one lie that extends Pinocchio's nose even further, the little marionette asks the fairy how it was that she knew that he was lying. And she responds by saying this. I think it's fascinating. She says, lies, my dear boy, are found out immediately because they are of two sorts. There are lies that have short legs and lies that have long noses. Your lie, as it happens, is one of those that has a long nose. Now, what's she talking about in that distinction? Well, the lies that have short legs are the ones that can only carry you a little bit of a distance before eventually the truth catches up with you with those kinds of lies. But the lies that have long noses are the ones that everybody else sees except for the liar. <laughs> it's obvious to everyone around you that you're not telling the truth, either out loud or to yourself, and they make the person look ridiculous. But in either case, what's interesting is Pinocchio's fairy tale, is, the point lies in this fact that every time we lie, there is something about our humanity that's taken away. My question for our purpose this morning is, where did this old Italian author get an idea like that? Well, we've been looking this semester uh, at the Ten Commandments and the way in which they unpack for us God's mind about the moral arc of the universe and how it bends towards his will in each of these commandments. And what we've realized is, is embedded in each one of them is another aspect of what God is like. Yahweh is revealing himself to these newly free Jewish people. And so what's happened in the Ten Commandments is we've gotten God's mind on lots of things. Everything from, from rest to private property. Everything from human happiness all the way to sexuality itself. And so this morning we want to look, though, at the power of the truth. And especially the way in which that power comes wrapped in our words. And what we find is, is that when God created man by his powerful word, he embedded in his image in man a relationship to our words that goes right to our hearts, right to the depths of our humanity. Which if you think about it, you, know, we, you have in Christianity the definition of the Christian God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who from all eternity have existed in perfect mutual, uh, eternal fellowship. In other words, they've been communicating. When God wanted to create the world, he did so by the utility of his words. I don't think it's a mistake that in John chapter 1, verse 1, when God himself comes to tabernacle among his people, he's described as being the word. And so doesn't it stand to reason that if we are created in the image of a God like that, 
When we begin to consider our humanity in terms of our speaking, our words, our tongues, that we would discover something absolutely fundamental to our existence. Something that's so innate, so pervasive, that if we can get a grasp on what's going on with our words, you have a major piece in the puzzle of understanding ourselves in its entirety. I think this is exactly what James 3, 4, and 5 are getting at. When you, when you read it, you find that James is talking about the tongue, which of course is an image for our words, like it's the rudder of a ship. You remember this passage? He says, think of all of the wood that goes into all the trees that go into making a huge sea vessel. But then a relatively tiny piece of wood controls the whole thing that we call the rudder. In other words, his point is, is you have your tongue is just as life-defining for you. So much so that the whole direction of your life can be determined by it, which I think is kind of a big claim. And I want to see this morning if it bears out in truth by looking at this idea of our tongue under three points. First of all, the power of the tongue. Secondly, the destructive tongue. And then thirdly, I want to look at the healing tongue. First of all, the powerful tongue. You know, I went through a phase a number of years ago where when I was sort of channel surfing, uh, I would always stop at C-SPAN's broadcast of British Parliament. Do you ever watch this? It's fascinating to watch the Brits sort of do government. There's uh, a Bible teacher by the name of Colin Smith who explains that when you're in session in Parliament, uh, the members are allowed to have all kinds of fun. They, they caricature each other. They mock each other. Uh, Gainsaying, you know, constant appeals to the chair. But the one thing that you cannot do when you're in the Assembly of Parliament is call someone a liar. You can't do it. It's been deemed in Parliament to be what they call unparliamentary language. And the members sometimes, you know, sort of invent these, uh, these ways to sort of call people a liar without actually using it. There's a story of Winston Churchill uh, who stood up and referred to something as a terminological inexactitude for the word lie. But they've got to be really careful not to accuse anyone of that or they get booted out of the assembly. It's just that strict. And so the question is, what's the point? Well, it's one thing to say something about someone's views or their opinions or their politics. But when you call them a liar, you go deep into their personhood. Why? Well, I think there's a biblical reason for that. And it, it, it has something to do with the amazing power that our words and our tongues possess. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. <laughs> Tim Keller tells a story about what he thinks is the worst uh, uh, travesty that's foisted upon our childhoods, and it's that little nursery rhyme that goes like this, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Yeah, they will, <laughs> because they're powerful, and they can be incredibly hurtful. And the Bible takes our words seriously. Jesus in Matthew 12, 36 says that every human being will give an account for every idle word. Every word that we say will be given an account for. You know, one of my favorite illustrations of this comes from Genesis chapter 25, when you have the story of Jacob and Esau and how Esau uh, uh, or Jacob stole his older brother's uh, birthright, right? Uh, what happens is, is it comes time to sort of deliver the family blessing and old Isaac, the father, is so blind he can't really see things, but he sends his oldest out to go prepare a blessing dinner. Well, while he's gone, Jacob, in cahoots with his mother, 
decides he's going to sneak in and act like he's Esau, and he gets the blessing pronounced over him instead. Well, when Esau walks back in and he finds out what's happened, he's completely frantic, and he begs his father to bless him as well. But Isaac explains that he's already given the blessing to his other brother, and now there's nothing that he can do. There's nothing left for him. Now, look, you've got to understand, in that story, all Isaac did was talk to his son. And I remember as a child reading that story and thinking, why didn't Isaac just stand up and say, oh, wait, wait, no, wait, I meant that for Esau. I take it all back. <laughs> but he didn't say that. And I do think, actually, there's something to be, to, to be said that that culture valued words in a way in which we don't. That they understood that when a word was spoken, it's taking, taken deathly seriously. So no, he can't just take it back after he said it. Look, think about the power of our words for a moment. The, the power of our words have at least three sort of applications, I think. The first thing is, words have power over the people to whom we deliver them to. Right? You think about how much words can start wars. Words can cast people into sadness and depression, maybe even suicide. Words have the power to frame an individual's personal psychology. You know, the Bible will go on to say that words are so central to human experience that you have the power with your words to both dehumanize someone but also create their substance using nothing more than your words. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. We like that word around here, right? In other words, you can rob someone of an essential component of their life by using words. So there's a power that words has over the people that's being spoken to, but there's also a sense in which the community around you is impacted by your words as well. This, by the way, is the original context of the commandment. And we read it before. You shall not bear false witness. That's actually specifically referring to false testimony that would be given in court. And so the original intent of the command was to say, where there is no truth, there is no justice. Now imagine a society that had no ability to sort of create a place where you repaid uh, for, you had repayment for wrongs. Because that's what happens in a culture that loses its trust in one another and as a whole. You know, the very foundation of a civilized society begins to erode when you can't trust people's words. Which I think is worth pushing into in this day. Because there's been a lot of charges in <coughs> the year 2020 of injustice in our society, has there not? My impression is that for a lot of the Bible-believing community, we've looked at those discussions around us and thought them to be maybe a little tangential to really what's important in the Christian life. But you know, it's not. And actually, in many ways, the Ninth Commandment insists that you do not have an orderly society without fair and judicial balances. So regardless of what you think about the assertions people are making about injustice, and regardless of where you come down on either side, depending on which side you think is being unjust or which ones may not be, the discussion is entirely Christian. It's what Christians are concerned about because the commandments have led us into that. We're supposed to be part of that conversation. Thirdly and finally, our words not only have power over the people we speak them to and our communities, but you know our words, most fascinating, 
have power over us as we speak them. In other words, our words participate in fashioning us, not just who we give words to. You know, we typically think of our words as being reflections of what's inside of us, which is certainly true. But if what James 3 is saying is true, then our words affirm, they create, and even destroy what's inside of us as they come out of us. You know, I've used this illustration before, but my wife and I had this uh, brought home to us most vividly when we started going to wedding rehearsal dinners. And if you've not had the privilege of being a part of one of those, at the end of them all, you, you give toasts to the bride and the groom. And invariably, there would be one of the uh, young men, sort of tough, you know, groomsman types, who would stand up and say words of affection to the groom. And invariably, he would get halfway into it and something would happen. Man, you know, me and this guy, we got a lot of good memories together, I'll tell you. But I'll tell you what, I, he means a lot to me. And when I think about how much he was there for me, he kind of starts blowing. And he always says the same thing. Oh, I didn't see this coming. They all say that. What's happening? For the first time, almost certainly, a man is wrapping his thoughts in words and giving them to another man. And you know what's happening? Those words are coming home to him. They're landing for the first time, and he begins to weep because it's the first time his affection for this guy has ever come home. That's what happens to us. Our words begin to shape us even as we speak them. They're sending them into permanence inside of our hearts. That's what our speaking has. When was the last time you've ever been irritated at someone, and you decided to vent to someone else about that person? You ever felt yourself kind of pick up and you get really cooked up? By the end, you're just completely livid at them? It's the power of your words over you. I remember this when I was in seminary, how much I'd be looking at a certain text that I was supposed to study for a class, making zero sense to me, whatever. But then I'd get in a study group and we'd talk it out and suddenly it came home to me. Why? It's the power of our words, the powerful tongue as we see it. That leads me to the second point, and that is a question about the destructive tongue. So God basically says, given the power of this thing, I'm going to give an entire command to protect people from the power of our words. You don't have to actually think a lot before you realize there's a lot to be protected. Jesus in John 8, describes Satan as the father of lies, which means he's a deceiver at his heart. And so God hates deception in any form, a lack of truthfulness is repellent to the God of the universe. Uh, Colin Smith, again, commentator, uh, uh, records what he refers to as four stations of lying. as sort of get, get progressing from sort of mild to worse. The first kinds of lies, he says, are what we might call polite lies. Uh, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a polite lie and refer to it again later. Someone approaches me and says, hey, Les. Uh, did you remember to pray for me about that thing that I asked you about a couple weeks ago? To which I in, in enthusiastically reply, I most certainly did. When the truth of the matter is, I hadn't thought about it since you told me about it a couple weeks ago. It's a polite lie, right? I'm trying to be polite by saying so. Another kind of polite lie is what we might call word inflation. Have you ever known anybody who, who says everything is just great or everything is just awful or everything's the best or the worst? It's been well cataloged that the word awesome just isn't awesome anymore. The Bible also describes polite lies as, as excessive words, 
word overuse. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. That's in Les Newsom's top five most scary verses in the Bible, by the way. Because the more you talk, the more you cheapen what you say when you're trying to mean it. So those are polite lies. The second stage, though, the second platform is what he calls uh, flattery. <laughs> and I love his definition of flattery. Flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their backs. Now, that's funny. Now, that, that's much funnier than the response we just got. Flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. It'll hit you on the way home. Why? Because what you do is, is you deny that individual participation in reality. Now, granted, we don't want to exchange that for some kind of verbal brutality. We're actually more on that in just a moment. But I wonder how much wisdom we lack because people have not been honest with us. Would I have made different life choices had someone actually come and given me maybe even sometimes painful feedback on the way in which I come across? <laughs> At the end of my freshman year in high school, I ran track as a freshman. I was on the track team, very briefly, uh, in, in my freshman year because my brother was a track star and I wanted to be like my big brother. And I remember going up to my coach after the season was over, and I don't know whether I was trying to kiss up to him or what, but I was going to ask him about what I might be doing during the summer months to sort of keep myself in shape. And I'll never forget it. Coach D. Baker, God rest he actually passed away this year, which is sad. But I'll never forget it. He looked up and he was like, Les, <clears throat> to be honest with you, you actually really don't have a lot of natural speed. <laughs> and honestly, you could probably work out a little bit, but it's probably not going to help that much. Now you're thinking to yourself, oh, how cruel. It's the most wonderful thing anyone ever told me <laughs> because I got to quit the track team, which I hated. It was honesty that came back to me. Every lie is a diminishment of a person. It tramples on their dignity and takes away their potential. Oh, and by the way, it always keeps them in a dependent posture of you. We treat them like children. We demean them oftentimes. We trample on them. Yeah, no, flattery is not harmless. Another sort of stage of it is what we might call exaggeration. Again, I'm not going to force you to live through what we talked about when I was talking about the third commandment. But remember all those times that you just ever so slightly embellish a story to put yourself in a much better light? Um, what are we doing? We're sitting there, we're managing my image. How much of my conversation that I have every day, I think it's worth asking, is really just a very sophisticated PR campaign so that you can constantly spin, constantly nuance, and protect your own character. Peter Lightheart thinks that the ninth commandment is actually a very fitting word in our social media age. Whew, listen to this. He says, we're spun by a whirlpool of rumor, innuendo, false accusations, slander, libel. People are tried and condemned by online lynch mobs. We love to share tweets and Facebook posts, even though we can't possibly confirm their accuracy. Luther, Martin Luther said that the Ninth Commandment requires us to, quote, put the best construction on everything, unquote, to give others the benefit of the doubt. We love to exaggerate the stupidity or the malevolence of ideological adversaries so that we can score points and win honor in Twitter combat. Officially committed to the Ten Commandments, though, the church does no better. Christians fire up their digital kindling to burn supposed heretics without due process, humility, or care. Whoosh. 
Look, there's a decent case to be made, I think, that social media, because of its ability to sort of curate your own feed, almost encourages lying by its design. It's a feature, not a bug, I would think. There's something to be thought about in that regard. Fourthly and finally, Smith mentions full-flown gossip. Gossip is simply passing along a rumor that, you, that is not substantiated and actually probably even can't be substantiated. It also involves that, that little twinge of delight that you have when you rejoice in someone's misfortune while you tell this little piece of information. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever had that moment where you think to yourself and you hear about someone else's misfortune that you're like, yeah, okay. One less person to be intimidated by, I guess. That's gossip. That's the heart of it. I mean, sometimes there's very overt gossips because when you confront people, you get a sort of emotional charge when you jump down their throats. Look, I think it's worth us considering, I think, even this thought in regards to our own marriages. And I'm going to do some marriage counseling here for a second. Just because you are thinking it doesn't mean that you have to say it. Lock that away somewhere. The Bible doesn't commend unhealthy venting just to make you feel better. There's a therapist back in the day, a Christian counselor by the name of Larry Crabb. He used to say, in our culture, we have put way too much emphasis on self-disclosure as the chief form of intimacy. It's not, by the way. Sacrifice is the chief form of intimacy. But it may very well be that part of my sacrifice for my spouse is learning to withhold knowledge of the things that I'm thinking from them. They may need that. So the powerful tongue, the destructive tongue, let me finish, though, with the healing tongue. What does God call us to, and how do we get there? Well, I think there's at least three things that God calls us to when we consider our words. The first one's this. Christians are the people who are working to force good things out of their mouths. <laughs> Ephesians 4.29 says this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Why? Well, because encouraging words that come out of your mouth will actually encourage you. You shape your own heart in that way. I've actually begun to wonder, even in studying this, if one of the reasons why I hurt so much on the inside is because of all the hurtful things I'm allowing to come out of my mouth. Secondly, though, I think the second call that we get is an encouragement to be honest with ourselves. Look, you don't root out lying in your soul until you stop lying to yourself. And those lies are very rarely ever unmasked when you're outside of a community. Genuine community, the reason for our connect groups, the reason why we have suffered as we have in 2020 is because in community, something happens where we let other people in on the darker places of our heart that used to be referred to as confession. I think we actually ought to revisit this whole topic. I realize for many of you that's got associations that are negative from maybe sort of a sacramental uh, uh, Roman Catholic sort of past of, a, of, a, of official confession. But look, James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. There's healing that comes when confession happens and we get integrity, we get wholeness. We're fragmented people until we learn to cloak the truth about myself, including my fears, in words, and then giving that to someone. That's confession. That's letting someone in. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Is there someone with whom you feel comfortable enough with to bear your soul, even the scary places? 
Thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this, we actually have to get to the heart of lying. You know, Matthew 12, uh, 4 says this, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Did you get that? Your heart and your mouth are directly connected. Bad words come from bad hearts. And I realize there's a huge study to be done on the nature of the human heart. But the upshot is saying this. Jesus is saying that until there's a change in your motivational center as a human being, you can't hope to be somebody who tells the truth. Hey, go back to me lying about whether I prayed for someone's prayer request. Seriously, why do I do that? I'm being honest about this. It's simply because I want the person listening to think that I'm a thoughtful person. There's insecurity inside of me. There's a fear on the inside that someone would perceive me as being someone who was not thoughtful. But here's a newsflash for you. I'm not a thoughtful person. And I'm, self, I'm as self-absorbed as the best of them. And I'm constantly trying to fashion a life for myself that's on my terms. And the funny thing is, my little white lies probably have long noses. Because they're probably apparent to everybody else except for me. Look, here's the point. This is why I'm sort of fascinated by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember as he's there in Matthew 26, 39, only hours before his death, he leans down before his father and he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Have you ever looked at that and thought that was kind of a moment of weakness? Jesus in that moment is saying, yeah, not everything inside of me wants to go to the cross. (laughs) And we look at that and think, oh, that's got to be weakness. But it's not. Jesus is being fully human in that moment by admitting everything that's in his heart, including his wrestling with obedience. Jesus says, let this cup pass because he is perfect. He's wrestling with God and exposing his anguish to him that is central to true humanity. And you know what that means? It means that in the end, we can go to him with whatever. We can be honest We can complain. We can come as we truly are. I love, 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 love social scientist Brene Brown's quote when she says, look, you can either choose to walk inside your own story and own it, or you can walk outside of your story and hustle for your own worthiness. What's she saying? She's saying that the gospel is the only thing that makes it possible for me to live when I'm not hustling for my own worthiness. And here's the thing. In so doing, it heals my heart of the fear that's causing me to lie all the time. Which makes it interesting to me that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, remember when the Holy Spirit kind of comes sweeping through the room? What's the first manifestation that you see of the Spirit's presence? A change in their words. Everybody gets to hear the gospel in their own terms, in their own languages. Why did that happen? Because when the Holy Spirit shows up and he captures the heart, he puts security where there used to be fear. He puts joy and peace where there used to be self-doubt. I think this is why in Romans 10, 17, Paul says that faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And what could that mean other than the fact that there is something so transformational that happens when you receive Jesus' words about you? Oh yes, words have power. 
And the word that has the most power is the word that comes when we sit down with God's word and we begin to work through it. Each and every Sunday that the word is preached, there is a good word coming to you that when it lands inside the human heart, plants a seed of transformation. A seed that looks and says, I'm not afraid. I don't live on the basis of fear, but in security. I'm not doubting myself, but I live in joy. So my question to you this morning as we close is, is do you realize that, that that's happening right now? <laughs> right now there's a word coming to you, and the question that you have as we close is, is will you believe it? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you help us to do so? Uh, we, we think like what your apostles said when they said, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Father, if it's true that our lies have left us misshapen, then it means even our view of the world may very well be as much. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us a grace, even as we sing this closing song, to be able to see in a beautiful and clear way what the truth really is. Some of that's painful, Father. There's a truth about ourselves that must be admitted. But, Father, in the end, there's also the truth that you have loved us with an unquenchable love. And if you would root that in our souls, we could tell the truth. Would you give us that grace? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.